the last four months, we've looked at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And then beginning today, we're going to continue looking at his uh, power and vitality in the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at it all through uh, the next 10 weeks and then on into the Lenten season, all the way through the Ascension, because there's so much that we can glean from uh, Jesus' life and ministry inasmuch as the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers him. So let's begin reading in verse 22 of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. <clears throat> it's an expression that probably all of us have heard at one time or another. Maybe not those that are rather young here in our midst. It's an expression that some of us have used. And the expression is simple. You are the spitting image of your father. You are the spitting image of your mother. This week being down in Atlanta and um, meeting a number of people that my parents know, they often would say, you know, you look a lot like, more like your mother than your father. And I always would answer, that's good. <clears throat> I remember years ago doing a wedding at the University of Virginia. Uh, for a friend of mine who was a, a real ladies' man. We never thought that he would settle down with one woman. He was always uh, playing the field. But we did the wedding, and we went over to uh, a university um, venue, 
up on a, a, maybe a third or fourth floor, and uh, it was the reception. And another friend of mine came to me and said, hey, have you ever met his father, the groom's father? I said, no, but would you introduce me to him? He said, I won't have to. You'll know him as soon as you see him. And sure enough, about 20 minutes later, I saw this man walk in. He looked just like my friend. He danced just like him. He talked just like him. And he had two women on his arm. <laughs> he was the spitting image of his father. You know where that term comes from, the spitting image, that expression? 200 years ago, the English who would see a man who resembled his father, they would say, you are the spirit and image of your father. So we've shortened it to spit an image, but actually it's spirit and image. And that's exactly what Paul says about Jesus. He says, in effect, he is the spit and image, the spirit and image of the heavenly Father. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In other words, in spirit and in image, he is a, an exact replica of his Father. And you know what's interesting about what Paul says in that verse? Not only is Jesus the spirit and image of the heavenly Father, but he says he is the firstborn of creation. You know what that means for every Christian? That if you're a Christian, you are the next born. Jesus is the firstborn, but you and I are the next born. In other words, God's intention for you through the power of the Holy Spirit is to make you, conform you to the image and spirit of the Heavenly Father. When you were born again of the Spirit of God, you inherited a spiritual aptitude that the unsaved person knows nothing about. You have the ability to apprehend spiritual truth. Over the last four months, we've looked at the power of the Holy Spirit. We've looked at the person of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the personality of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. We've seen His attributes in a vast array. And that's why for the next five months, we'd like to continue to focus on the person and work of the Holy Spirit as we see Him evident in the life and ministry of Jesus. Because Jesus' whole identity is wrapped up in the Holy Spirit. We said it this way, Jesus stakes his life and ministry on the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, you must stake your own life and ministry and identity on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, throughout the centuries, there have been a lot of discussion about the way in which we are designed, men and women, and our nature. We hear reference to this often in our culture. I can't tell you the number of times I've been in funeral homes, and, and there's someone in the casket, and, and I go up to the casket, and maybe a family, family member is there, and they say something like, you know, his spirit is still with us. 
His spirit is still with us. I can't tell you the number of times someone has said about someone else, they love me or I love him or her with all of my heart, with all of my soul. We talk about spirit. We talk about soul. We talk about body. But when you examine the scriptures, you find quickly that a lot of the things we hear today in our culture are nonsense. The Bible says when God created man, he created him of the dust of the earth. His body was formed of the dust of the earth. To earth you were taken, from earth you were taken, to earth you, will, you shall return. And then the Bible says he breathed, God breathed into the dust, breathed into the dust. The word breath there is ruah, the spirit. He breathed the Spirit of God into the dust, and man became a living soul. So there you've got it. In that one verse, you see man's body, spirit, and soul. When God created us, he created us body, spirit, and soul. And it's interesting, when you examine the words in Hebrew, there are two of them for spirit and soul, and there are two words for spirit and soul in Greek, and those words are used over 1,600 times. You find that every time one of those words is used to describe the soul, it always is speaking of the person's self, their ego, their self-consciousness, the soul is the seat of man or woman, and it is the locus of the person's will. On the other hand, when the Bible speaks of the spirit, it always portrays the spirit of man or woman as that part of us that is God-conscious. So before Adam sinned, the Bible indicates that his spirit was alive toward God. There was an unbroken fellowship between God, who is spirit, and the spirit of Adam. In fact, God's spirit dictated to Adam's spirit, and Adam's spirit dictated to his will. Therefore, everything that Adam did was in obedience to the will of God. His soul, his self-consciousness was subordinated to his worship of God through his spirit. As a result, his will did whatever the Holy Spirit directed him to do. That's why Paul says this to the Corinthians. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. You see, in perfect Adam, the Holy Spirit had free reign. He was able to communicate with Adam directly through his human spirit. The will of Adam conformed to the will of his human spirit that was controlled by the Holy Spirit. But when Adam determined to use his will to go in direction of his self rather than the direction of God's spirit, 
the results were cataclysmic. Someone has described the fall of man into sin this way. It's like a three-story building that has been bombed. Now, we've all seen those pictures, maybe World War II, maybe Iraq, of a three-story building. And when the bomb is detonated, the force is so great that the third floor of the structure is decimated, and it falls into the second floor. And while the second floor retains somewhat of its structure, and so does the first floor, there are gaping holes and there are cracks in that structure. And someone has said that's exactly what happened when we sinned in Adam. The third floor, our spirit, was decimated, and it fell into the second floor, which is our soul. And our soul and spirit began to be or became inexorably mangled. In fact, there's no way you can distinguish between soul and spirit. And of course, the first floor continues to retain its basic structure, but there are holes and there are cracks, and as we age, we see those problems. And it's only in Christ that the human spirit and the human soul can be separated again. Now, in English, we've got adjectives for the body. We say bodily. We've got adjectives for the spirit. We say spiritual. But in English, we don't really have an adjective to describe the soul. But in Greek, they do. And the word in Greek is most often translated natural, the natural man. But the best English translation of that, although this really isn't an English word, would be soulish. That's why in the book of James, chapter 3, we read this. The wisdom of man descends not from above, but it is earthly, soulish, devilish. You see, James is describing the natural man in his natural, soulish condition. That's what Paul means when he says to the Corinthians that the natural man, the soulish man, cannot comprehend the things of the Spirit of God. That's why the writer of Hebrews speaks of the Word of God as living and active, able to divide the soul and the spirit. I don't know if you've had this experience. If you're a Christian and you've witnessed to very many people in your life, often you'll find two different circumstances happening in the face of your declaration of the gospel. Sometimes you'll see eyes that are alive, and they're sucking it in. Tell me more. Everything they say and every way they appear is that they're hungry to receive more spiritual truth. And that's a good thing because you know that the only reason they have that hunger and that alive nature is because the Holy Spirit's at work. But how many times have you spoken to somebody of the gospel and they look at you and their eyes are glazed over? They're pretty much giving you the indication that please shut up. <laughs> I really don't know what you're talking about. I have no clue. Their spirit is dead. 
Paul describes the natural man this way. He says to Christians, before you were born again of the spiritual spirit of God, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In other words, your spirit and your soul were co-joined. There was no life. The natural man's spirit is forever lost in pursuit of his own soulish self. And that's why at the beginning of Jesus' life, here in Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit records the testimony of Simeon because he is the opposite of a soulish man. He is a perfect portrait of a man whose spirit is alive. He's a perfect picture of what the Holy Spirit can do in a natural man, bringing him to spiritual insight and maturity. In fact, I would submit to you that Simeon is the spitting image of every sanctified believer in Jesus Christ. Let's take a look at him. First of all, notice the symbolism of Simeon. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, the word consolation is parakletos in Greek. It's the same word Jesus uses in John 20, 16, to describe the Holy Spirit. The Paracletus is to come, the one who is the consoler, the comforter. He is the same one described by Isaiah in chapter 40 and 52. When Isaiah says, there is one who is coming who will be the consolation of Israel. You see, Simeon is not waiting for a man to come. He's waiting for God to come. And the Holy Spirit of God witnesses with his human spirit that this one Jesus who is in the temple is indeed the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit produces in his spirit and in his soul a deep, willing desire to take up Christ in his arms. You know, it's interesting. The world sees the Savior or hears about the Savior and wants to kill him. Herod, the Pharisees. Simeon hears of the consolation of Israel. He sees the consolation of Israel. He starts to worship. The world wants to hold the Savior at arm's length. Simeon wants to take the Savior in his arms. Everything that God intends his people to be, Simeon is. When the Holy Spirit says, there is the one, Simeon rushes in to receive him. He wills to receive the one who comes to receive him. As isn't that exactly what is true of a spiritually alive person? A person whose spirit is alive and his soul is being made alive, and his will becomes submitted to the will of God, he desires to receive Christ, not only once, but on a daily basis. Second, 
Notice the slavery of Simeon. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Now, the word Simeon uses for Lord is interesting. It's found only three places in the New Testament. It's the harshest word we have for God. The word is despotos, from which we get the word despot. Peter speaks of the despot when he says, he refers to those who've wandered away from the faith. He says, they are denying the master, the despotos, who bought them. When the martyrs in the book of Revelation who were under the throne, who are calling out for God's justice, they begin to pray and they say, despotos, how long until you avenge our blood? Whenever a first century slave was talking about someone who was enslaving them, who had absolute control over them, they'd talk about a master and they'd use the term despotos. When the English spoke of slavery, they said when a man enslaved another, it was the sum of all villainies. But then they said, When God enslaves a man, it's the sum of all blessing. And Simeon knows it. Simeon says, Despotus, sovereign Lord, now let me depart in peace. Because in the light of the presence of this babe, he doesn't see himself as a priest, although he is. He doesn't see himself as a prophet, although he is. He sees himself as a slave to one who is greater than himself. And when the Holy Spirit transforms you and me, when he begins to resurrect our spirit and transform our soul, and he begins to conform our will with his own will, We don't begin to see ourselves as a father, a mother, an employer, an employee, a student, a teacher. We see ourselves first and foremost as a slave, as a slave to Christ. And then third, notice the sainthood of Simeon. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Now notice this is not a prayer. It's not even a plea. It's a statement of fact. He's like Jacob who after years of being separated from his son Joseph, when he sees him, he says, Now I am willing to die for my eyes have seen your face. You know, it's one thing to want to see your son. It's another thing after you see him to say, okay, I'm ready to check out. You know, it's one thing to be able to see a baby and say, boy, isn't that baby cute? It's another thing to be able to say, Lord, I've seen enough. I'm ready to depart. The word dismiss literally means to send away. 
It's the same word that a slave would use who was guarding something the master possessed and he was finished with his, his guarding and he'd say, okay, I'm ready to be dismissed. What Simeon is saying is, my eyes have seen your salvation and my soul is free whether I live or whether I've die, I die. I've seen the purpose of my life. You know, this is the time of year when people make resolutions. According to USA Today, the resolution that's most common involves our weight. This time of year, people make determinations about their weight, and generally it means that it's going to be, they're going to be lighter by the end of the year. <laughs> now imagine for a minute <clears throat> that you are the heir of a billionaire. You don't have to worry about money. Whatever you want, you can get. Wherever you want to go, you can, get, you can go. Your mind, your life is, is totally autonomous. You can do whatever you want to do. You can go wherever you want to go, but there's one thing in your life that's got you bound, and that's food. You can't resist food. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's in your genes, but whatever it is, you can't stop eating. So one day, you decide to take care of this problem. You decide to go to Arizona to what's called a spa. You check into this spa. It's not really a spa. It's really a, a boot camp for the obese. And whereas you used to get up anytime you want to, now you've got to get up at 4.30 in the morning. You have to run wherever you go. You have to do what they tell you to do every minute of the day. Whereas before the treadmill was something you would look at with disdain, now you're married to it. Whatever you used to eat, you no longer can eat. They tell you what to eat. And often it's nasty. But after a month or so, you begin to discover something. You begin to discover that you're freer than you used to be. You begin to discover that you're not as tired as you used to be. Your mind is sharper than it used to be. Where you never saw muscles, you're now seeing them. And when it comes to food, you begin to realize that once your impulses ruled you, now you're being ruled by something greater than impulse. This discipline... This stricture that they've applied to your life is making you free. And all at once, you begin to discover that you're being transformed. Now, that's exactly what happens to Simeon, and it's demonstrated here. You see, what makes a slave a saint is when the Holy Spirit begins to rule your will and your soul begins to fall in line. Little by little, your self-consciousness gives way to God-consciousness. 
You begin to say, what does he desire rather than what do I desire? What would you have me do rather than this is what I want to do? So as Simeon takes up the baby in his arms, he's thoroughly prepared to surrender his life to this child. And as a result, he is thoroughly free. He's free to live. He's free to die. He's free to face the final enemy. He says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. There's no more clutching at things. There's no more fretting. There's no more fearing. The focus is now not on Simeon. It's on the Lord. And at that moment, we get a picture of what the Holy Spirit desires to do in every one of us. He desires to rebuild our fallen human structure. So that the Spirit of God begins to dictate to our human spirit and our will begins to surrender to the will of God through our spirit and our soul begins to come into relationship with our spirit as subordinate to our spirit and he can forever separate our spirit from our soul and take our focus off ourself and put it onto him. And you know what the result of that is? Perfect peace. He will keep you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on Christ. Of all the resolutions you and I can make for a new year, is there any greater resolution, is there any greater desire that you have than perfect peace? I mean, wouldn't that be a great thing to begin to seize in 2011 to live in perfect peace? Well, there's only one person I know who can make that a reality. That's the Holy Spirit. And He can do it in your life. Ask Him. Amen.